Welcome to Inside 65, the Reserve Bank of Australia's podcast. Our podcasts aim to bring you insights into monetary policy, the financial system, including payments, our economy, and the impact of the world at large. Christopher Kent, Assistant Governor Financial Markets Group, gave a speech at the 2023 Kanga News Debt Capital Market Summit about the long and variable monetary policy lags felt through the cash flow channel. Chris discusses how some of these lags, particularly the high share of fixed rate mortgages and high savings buffers held by Australian households, have affected the transmission of monetary policy. Chris also discusses the Reserve Bank's continued move to quantitative tightening. So tune in now and listen to Chris's speech. It's great to be back at this summit. Last year, I discussed the Reserve Bank's move to quantitative tightening or QT. And today I'm gonna provide a a brief update on the unwinding of our unconventional policies before I turn to more conventional monetary policy issues, which will be the focus of my presentation. So we're currently pursuing passive QT, whereby we allow our holdings of government bonds to roll off as they mature. The next maturity of substance is the $13 billion worth of the April 2023 Australian government bond. Some central banks have slowed QT by reinvesting some of their maturing bonds. Others have done the opposite, pushing QT along by selling bonds well ahead of maturity. While QT will contribute to a moderate decline in our balance sheet over the next few years, you can see the maturities of those bonds here. The roll-off of the bank's term funding facility will lead to a sizeable reduction in our balance sheet this year and next. So banks are preparing for that well in advance, and when the time comes, they'll use some of the balances held in their exchange settlement accounts at the Reserve Bank to repo those loans that they've obtained under the TFF. In return, they'll receive Uh, back the collateral that had been provided to secure against those loans. Now, if that collateral was in the form of securities issued by the Australian government or the states and territories, there'll be no net effect on a bank's liquid asset ratio. But much of the collateral collateral pledged for the TFF was in the form of self-securitised assets, which do not count towards a bank's liquidity for regulatory purposes. Accordingly, as they run down their ES balances to repay funds borrowed under the TFF, banks will need to obtain high quality liquid assets. Uh, They could also source, of course, more of their funding in products like term deposits to reduce the amount of liquid assets that they need to hold. Meanwhile, banks have been uh, issuing more long-term bonds in what had, as Lawrence suggested, been relatively favourable conditions in global bond markets. Our liaison with the banks uh, suggests that they they are planning for further issuance of bonds as they prepare for the roll-off of the first tranche of 76 billion worth of the TFF between April and September of this year. However, conditions in global bond markets have been strained recently following the failure, amongst others, of Silicon Valley Bank in the US. Volatility in Australian financial markets has picked up, but markets are still functioning And, most importantly, Australian banks are unquestionably strong. The bank's capital and liquidity positions are well above APRA's uh, regulatory requirements. And the banks are are already well advanced on their bond issuance plans for the year. 
they could defer their bond issuance for a time. And even if markets remain strained for a while, Australian banks' issuance will continue to benefit from the strength of their balance sheets. As loans from the TFF mature and are replaced with funding at higher cost, this will tend to push up banks' funding costs. The TFF accounted for around 5% of banks' overall funding at its peak. However, much of the funding was hedged, either by issuing term-matched fixed-rate mortgages or by using derivatives to convert the fixed-rate TFF payments back to floating rates. Hence, the rise in the cash rate and interest rates more broadly has already had some effect on the cost of banks' funding from the TFF. So now I want to turn to uh, monetary policy of a more traditional nature, inflation targeting. So it was 30 years ago this month when the bank first raised the concept of inflation targeting in a speech by the then Governor Bernie Fraser. His description at that time closely matches the formulation that's used now, namely a flexible medium-term inflation target whereby the bank aims to keep inflation within the range of 2 to 3 per cent on average over time. Currently, the bank is focused on bringing inflation back down to the target range. High inflation imposes a significant burden on the finances of all Australians. The rise in interest rates, which is needed to rein in inflation, that imposes an extra burden on mortgage holders, but that burden will be higher still if we don't bring inflation down in a timely manner. The transmission of tighter monetary policy through to economic activity and inflation, that takes time. Monetary policy affects spending and business uh, investment, uh, spending and, sorry, and investment of businesses and households with, with a lag. And in turn, those changes in demand take time to have their full effect on the setting of prices and of wages. These lags mean that central banks need to set monetary policy with a view to the future when it will be having its strongest effects. If instead the transmission of monetary policy was rapid, well, in that uh, mythical world, we could use timely course corrections to navigate the economic path. However, the presence of lags in transmission adds a challenge to the setting of monetary policy. The lags in the transmission of policy are not only long, but they're variable can change over time in response to cyclical and structural changes in the economy. Further complicating matters, uh, the lags are different across the different channels of monetary policy. So today I'll mention two temporary changes that by themselves are likely to have lengthened the time it currently takes for monetary policy to affect spending via its effect on the cash flow of borrowers. I'll stress at the outset though that this cash flow channel is just one way in which monetary policy is transmitted through the economy. There are other critical channels and, as I'm going to emphasise later, these appear to be operating in the usual way. So the first change contributing to slowing, uh, uh, to slowing the cash flow channel is the high share of fixed rate mortgages by Australian standards. Unlike variable rate borrowers whose required mortgage uh, repayments have risen alongside increases in the cash rate, fixed rate borrowers face a large and delayed uh, jump in their mortgage payments depending on the term of their fixed rate loan. 
Fixed rate loans, uh, they peak slightly above 35%, as you can see here in this chart, of all housing credit in early 2022. And that compares with a pre-pandemic average of closer to 20%. While fixed rate loans have been rolling off since then, and borrowers have generally switched onto variable rate loans, this adjustment still has some way to play out. So the unusually high share of fixed rate loans when the bank started to tighten monetary policy has added an extra delay to the pass through to outstanding mortgage rates. And we can see the effect of that high share of fixed rate mortgages in this chart. Since last May, the average outstanding mortgage rate across all loans has increased by around 110 basis points less than the cash rate. More than half of this difference owes to the effect of fixed rate mortgages that haven't yet rolled onto higher interest rates. Also, you'll note the average outstanding rate for variable rate mortgages has risen by around 40 basis points less than the cash rate, and that's a result of competition among lenders for good quality borrowers. A few days ago, we published detailed material on fixed rate borrowers. I'm not going to repeat too much of that here, other than to note that increases in the cash rate have been passing through to a sizable number of loans that rolled off their fixed rates uh, last year. So that was about 590,000 loans, or about 10% of the value of all loans. So this has already been occurring. Half of the remaining fixed rate loans are due to roll off over the course of this year. That's about 880,000 loans or so. As those fixed rate loans reset at a higher interest rate, borrowers will be faced with a sizable jump in their required uh, mortgage payments. This reduction in borrowers' free cash flows will place pressure on their budgets, in addition to that associated with the burden of high inflation, and require an adjustment of their spending and or their savings behaviour. It's not quite the end of the story, though. When we're thinking about the transmission of policy, we need to think about the timing of that, those cash flow effects on spending of those borrowers. One issue is the extent to which fixed rate borrowers make adjustments in, in anticipation of rolling over onto a higher mortgage rate to better smooth their spending. Now, if all fixed rate borrowers did this to a significant degree, it would mean that the timing of the cash flow channel would be largely invariant to the share of fixed rate borrowers. But that seems unlikely. I suspect many fixed rate borrowers don't adjust their spending in advance, but rather wait until they roll on to the higher rate. And even those that are more forward looking are likely to make just moderate adjustments at first, with further adjustments required at the time of the switch. Hence, despite the potential for some forward looking behavior, it's plausible that the high share of fixed rate loans has contributed to a longer lag for the cash flow channel. <coughs> Estimates of how much further scheduled mortgage payments will rise as fixed rate borrowers roll off their loans this year are provided in this chart. Scheduled mortgage payments, so what are those? Those are interest, the interest payments plus the scheduled principal repayments those are shown in the blue bars here, the dark blue bars. And those rose by around 1.1 percentage points of household disposable income over 2022. And then the blue dashed line 
provides an estimate of how much further scheduled mortgage payments will rise based on the current cash rate. So that's around another 1.5 percentage points further increase by the end of 2024, and most of that comes through by the end of this year. So only about 45 percent of the rise in the cash rate to date had passed through to total scheduled mortgage payments at the end of last year, although of course slightly more will have passed through in the early months of this year. There's a second important factor that's likely to be adding to the lag in the transmission of monetary policy to household spending, the large run-up in the stock of household savings during the pandemic, with some of that undertaken by borrowers. And we can see that in the sharp rise in <coughs> what I've labelled here as extra mortgage payments, and those occurred during the pandemic, shown by the uh, violet portion of the bars in this chart. So these are payments into uh, borrowers' offset and redraw accounts. Balances in these accounts are a source of savings that mortgage holders can draw upon uh, if they choose to help sustain their spending in the face of rising interest rates and other cost of living expenses. Even though these extra mortgage payments declined a little through 2022 as scheduled mortgage payments rose, uh, borrowers in aggregate were still adding to this stock of savings. So just taking those violet bars and turning them into a line here in this chart, <coughs> you can see the stock of these the extra payments is high. These are just the flows into. But the stock is high relative to incomes compared with historical experience. Uh, this shows the quarterly flows into offset and redraw accounts. Over the decade or so prior to the pandemic, these, these payments averaged about 2% of households' disposable income. So that's the solid line there, just above 2%. And that reflects the fact that borrowers in Australia, they tend to pay down their mortgages well before the typical contracted term of 25 years. If we focus in on the years between 2012 and 2015, households steadily made above average payments and so they built additional buffers in their offset and redraw accounts, over and above their normal 2%. Interest rates were being cut at the time and borrowers saved uh, some of the reduction in their scheduled mortgage payments. And then from about 2017 to 2019, when that violet bar drops below the 2% average, borrowers' payments uh, declined uh, quite noticeably. And that occurred at a time of weak income growth and so reducing their actual mortgage payments in this way helped to sustain stronger consumption than would otherwise have been the case. Now, during the pandemic, borrowers again built up their mortgage buffers at a faster than normal rate, adding a similar additional amount to their buffers as they had done in that earlier episode that I just mentioned. Indeed, for a number of quarters during the pandemic, extra mortgage payments were as much as two percentage points above the 2% historical average. And that's all as a share, uh, again, of disposable income on a quarterly basis. Now, extra mortgage payments dipped just below 2% in the December quarter of last year, but the additional mortgage buffer still constitutes an important part of the extra savings of households overall. Now, to give a sense of the size of this additional mortgage buffer that they built up during the pandemic, if borrowers decided not to make any extra mortgage payments for a time, so they just pay what they need to, 
uh, it would take around four quarters for the additional buffer built up during the pandemic to run back down again. Again, this is all relative to historical norms where Australians pay down their, Australians pay down their mortgages more quickly than required. Now, indebted households' willingness to draw on these and other savings buffers will have an important bearing on how the economy evolves from here. If borrowers allow these additional savings to run down, even to some extent, it'll help sustain their current spending in an environment of higher interest rates and cost of living pressures. That is, they can choose to delay some or all of the effect of the cash flow channel of monetary policy on their spending for a time. Whether they'll do this, however, is uncertain. They may act like they did in 2017, 2019, running down their buffers by reducing payments into offset and redraw accounts to well below their historical average uh, during a period of weak income growth. Or borrowers may instead decide to hold on to their additional buffers or at least run them down gradually over a much longer period. Indeed, higher interest rates create an incentive to save more and pay down mortgage balances more quickly. And that effect is known as the intertemporal channel of monetary policy. At the same time, there will be some borrowers whose budgets are under substantial pressure and so they'll have to run down their buffers to meet higher living and interest expenses. <coughs> Importantly though, <coughs> this additional stock of savings that I've been talking about is not distributed evenly across different borrowers. Those with relatively new loans uh, and on lower incomes, they're likely to have more modest buffers, if any, uh, and they'll be feeling more pressure to adjust their spending than others. The bank's very conscious of the challenges facing borrowers, particularly as interest rates have risen very quickly over the past year. That said, a wide range of borrowers appear to have built up sizeable buffers across different income groups and among fixed and variable uh, rate borrowers. This chart just shows for variable rate loans, those borrowers on lower incomes added about $17,000 on average to buffers in offset and redraw accounts over the past three years. And this compares with an average of 39,000 accumulated by the highest income borrowers. But loan balances of borrowers on lower incomes and hence their loan payments are also smaller on average. They're about 230,000 compared with 575,000 for the high income borrowers. And one final caveat is even within these income quartiles shown here, the average is skewed by some borrowers accumulating much larger balances than others. So in summary, the lagged effect of the cash flow channel monetary policy is likely to be somewhat elongated currently due to the high portion of fixed rate loans and the sizable buffers held by many uh, borrowers. This means it's likely to take longer than usual to see the full effect of higher interest rates on household cash flows and household spending. However, only one third of households have a mortgage and the cash flow channel is only one way in which higher interest rates affect the economy. Ultimately, what matters for demand and for inflation is how businesses and households overall, not just the borrowers among them, respond to higher interest rates through all of the channels of monetary policy. Now, there's no reason to think that other channels of monetary policy are more or less effective than usual. For example, the sharp reduction in the demand for new housing loans, that's in line with historical experience, given the sharp rise in interest rates and declines in turnover and prices in housing markets. The demand for new construction, that's also fallen noticeably. 
higher interest rates are making it more attractive to save, more costly, a bit more costly for firms to invest. And they have also contributed to lower asset prices and thereby lower wealth, which will impinge on households' willingness to spend. Now, it may appear as if, uh, the, it may appear that because the Australian dollar has little changed over the past year, at least on a trade-weighted basis, uh, that the exchange rate is not operating as usual. Uh, but the rise in interest rates in Australia has helped support the value of the Australian dollar, and therefore the prices of imported goods and services are not as high as they otherwise would have been. In short, all of these other channels of monetary policy are helping to slow the growth of aggregate demand and bring down inflation. The bank will continue to closely monitor the transmission of monetary policy and its impact on household spending, the labour market and inflation. The board will respond as necessary to bring inflation back to target in a reasonable time. And this will benefit all Australians as high inflation imposes a significant burden on all of us, those with a mortgage, those with savings, and the most vulnerable that have neither. Chris's speech provided good insights into some of the lags that are affecting the transmission of monetary policy through the cash flow channel. Chris confirms that some lags are not only long, but they are variable. And he also outlines that these lags are only temporary and are changing over time in response to cyclical and structural changes in the economy. We hope you enjoyed the speech and thank you for listening.